in Exodus 34, right before uh, the beginning of this chapter, Moses has asked God to show him his glory. And uh, Moses is also at this time receiving uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, the new tablets after the previous ones have been broken. And so beginning in verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one, shall, no one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head, towards the earth, and worshipped. Why consider Exodus chapter 34 as a kind of intro to uh, the Reformation? Well, what we see here when we look at what God says to Moses is we see something that we would, recall, we would call the divine dilemma. Uh, you would pay, you'd pay attention here how the Lord proclaimed himself that he is a God merciful and gracious. To this we say amen. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is the God we serve. This is the God who has shown love to us. This is the great creator. This, these are his, uh, his attributes. This is his character. This is his nature. But in the same sense, God also clearly shows his justice. That he forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Wait a minute, but we would also read here, but by, will by no means clear the guilty. So now we've got a slight dilemma here. How does a good, gracious, loving, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God, How does he forgive sin, but will by no means let the guilty go unpunished? You see, he, he, he can forgive sins, but all sin must be paid for. This is the divine dilemma. Yes, Virginia. Uh, yes, but this still the guilt is upon the guilty, right? And so what we see here is really, you would go to, if you wanted to, you could go to Romans chapter 3, where you would see that God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. But the guilty remains guilty even though they ask for forgiveness because the sin must be paid for. And so this was the question that Luther faced. How is a sinner made right with God? How can a sinner be made right with a holy and just God? 
You see, the guilt must be placed on another. This is where you get the term the scapegoat, right? And so, for God to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, maintaining his character, but will by no means clear the guilty, he charges the guilt to another. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the glorious gospel whereby God charges Christ with our sins. Upon him was the iniquity of us, all of us, all was laid. And so that God forgives us, declares us righteous because Christ was the sin bearer. This is important to understand because this upholds the justice and the righteousness of God. Uh, and that's what Paul would say in uh, Romans. And so I, I kind of want that just to get, get the brain going this morning because these are questions that Luther was dealing with. How is it that a sinner can be declared right or made right with God? It's at the very heart of the gospel. This was Luther's Reformation. We, last week, we spent time considering Luther the man, some of the good, the bad, the ugly, but the whole of, the, of his person. This week, what I want to deal with is Luther's Reformation. I want us to see what happens when the Reformation goes too far, and then I want us to consider Rome's response to the Protestant Reformation. And so what was going on in Martin Luther? And we're going to deal primarily on the continent of Europe next week. Well, next week, I would like to consider probably one of the most misunderstood figures of the Reformation, John Calvin. And then from Calvin, we will go and look to um, the English Reformation uh, and what was going on up there in Scotland and, and England as well. But for right now, we're going to stay on the continent and we're going to look at Luther's Reformation. And he Here's the question. How is a sinner made right with God? How is it that we can be placed in right standing before a holy God? Because we are sinful creatures. And I am guilty of sin. It doesn't matter how well I could live my life from today forward because there is past sin that is on my rap that has stained my record. And so Luther wrestles with this, but it's like the breaking of the dawn as he comes to realize this truth. It is imputed righteousness. If you have your Bibles, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I think the one verse that we would see the greatest example of imputed righteousness is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And this... Is, 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 is Protestantism at its fundamental core. This understanding of imputed righteousness, or as they would say in their time, alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes from outside of me in its entirety. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is one of the greatest, chapter 4, chapter 5, one of the greatest Two linking chapters in all of the New Testament concerning the ministry of, of reconciliation, what God has done in Christ for us. And then Paul is bringing it to this, to this culmination here in verse 21. And it is, I mean, if, 
there needs to be like a hundred exclamation points at the end of this verse for our sake. And also, this is, this is like the burning bush of the New Testament. Take your feet off. This is holy ground, as we would even consider what is said here. But for our sake, he, God, made Christ him to be sin, who knew no sin, no acquaintance with it, no, no intimacy with it. No, he knows what sin is, but he did not know it internally, personally. Who knew no sin so that in Christ, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This breaks through in the mind of Luther. Luther sees this, understands this through Romans, through Galatians, and even here in 2 Corinthians, and comes to this, to this, this grasp that my standing before God is not based upon my own righteousness. Because my own righteousness, we would read in Isaiah, is nothing but filthy rags. So there's this understanding that he has received by faith a righteousness outside of himself. Nothing less than the complete, total righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why when we talk about the gospel, it's very important when we share the gospel, when we, when we talk about Jesus and his life, don't just go to the cross, death, burial, resurrection. That's, ha- that's, that's half the story. That's the atonement, but the purpose of 33 years of sinless perfection was a life lived that would be credited to our accounts by faith. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when Luther understands imputed righteousness, it is though the veil is lifted. Now, we understand this, again, imputed, credited to our account, put to our account, Versus infused righteousness. This is the, the, the Roman Catholic view. And this is a, a, a synergistic, so to speak, um, where we have been given grace, we have been made right, but we are continuing in that. Oftentimes, the terms justification, uh, when we talk about it and when Catholics talk about it, they are two different terms. They, they often bring justification and sanctification in together, uh, whereas we see them as very separate terminology. And so Luther breaks free from this infused, this kind of participation in righteousness that I must contribute as well. Because it is all of Christ. It's all what Christ has done. And so when this happens... There's this, break, this breakthrough with Luther. His Reformation doesn't end there, but it starts there. Then there's the indulgences and the sacrament of penance. Anybody have any understanding of what these two, uh, these two things are? Well, I'll give you the answer. Remember the fourth Lateran Council? That was the one we talked about from the beginning. That's where they, they, they put transubstantiation, the, the view of the literal body and blood of Christ, in writing as dogma for the church. Well, also at the fourth Lateran Council in 1215, uh, they came to define penance as contrition, confession, and satisfaction. What do we mean by this? Well, here you have it. Contrition, you must show genuine sorrow, confession, you must admit your sins to a priest, and it was mandatory that you had to do it at least once a year. It had to be on Easter, at least once a year. 
And then satisfaction. You must make satisfaction to God through special prayers, fasting, almsgiving, or taking a pilgrimage. And Luther's saying, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I can't reconcile this sacrament of penance. Because to, to Luther, this was bondage around his, on his back. To, as, as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress wore the great burden. So this was as well to him. Yes, Virginia. Correct, correct. And it's building up to that, yes. And so, so but you, you, you're sorry. You're confessional. Okay, but have you made satisfaction for those sins yet? Have you done, gone through these special prayers? Have you done these works? Have you taken the pilgrimage? Have you done the almsgiving? So, yes, this is going on. And then, finally, uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back is the treasury of merit. And this uh, is believed that the, the, the Pope had the keys uh, to this treasury of merit, which uh, Christ, the, the understanding is that when Christ died, he had enough meritous work to save people. But then in the death of the other saints, there's this overflow of merits, good works that can be purchased. You can purchase the good works of the fallen saints. Mary's got a ton of them. And you can purchase these, and the Pope holds this sort of spiritual reservoir of good deeds. And the purchase of merits were from the dead saints in order to get somebody out of purgatory. This is what's going on early on in the 16th century. This outrages Luther, but in many ways, politically outrages Luther because he is a German and he cares about his people. And so he looks at this and he says, he takes issue, but his issue is not, not entirely theological. His issue is also that my people are being exploited and they are taking the money of the poor. And so he, he has a problem. And so he really starts to ramp up, yes, theologically, but also the exploitation of his German people. And he will not stand for it. And so, again, we would look at this and we kind of scoff at the treasury of merit. And we say, where is that in the Bible? Mind you, the Catholic Church runs on two parallel um, uh, things of authority. It's scripture and tradition. They would say this is the tradition of the church. And so because it's not in the Bible does not mean it is not authority to them. So these are the things that were going on with Luther for his reformation, what was building up in Germany and spreading. Yes, sir. You would give your money, um, and Will, uh, Tetzel was the, was the one who uh, Luther took great issue with. Tetzel had this little jingle that he would go around, and he would say, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So consider um, that your grandmother 
had, uh, had, had died, and she was in purgatory at the time, is what was been told, because the merits weren't adding up, and she needed more merits to her account in order to get to heaven. And so uh, $100 might get her, I don't know, five, five, six, seven. I don't know how they would quantify the amount of merits based. I don't know if there was a scale or what, but you would pay money to have more merits placed upon her in her death that would get her out of purgatory into heaven. That's what the treasury of merits were. So uh, it's, to me, it's very bizarre. Um, but we also have to understand, and I, I talk about it, the chronological snobbery. Let's not look back uh, and just completely scoff. We didn't live in that time. And so uh, it, as foolish as it sounds um, and as wrong as it truly is, uh, it is an exploitation uh, of the poor. Yes, Virginia. Well, suppose the grandmother is I, I, Where does it end, right? And it's so subjective. How do you quantify it, right? I mean, a lot of it is for the building of St. Peter's Basilica that, is, that was going on, um, and the money was being funneled into. Who has the nicest churches? The Roman Catholics do, right? Have you seen, have you seen, have you seen over here? I mean, the, the new church that they built, St. Francis de Sales, I mean, it, it, it's one. It, yeah, yeah, sure. That, yeah, that's a question that I don't have the answer to. But the Pope has the keys to the treasury of merit. What we say is the grandmother was never good enough. But Christ was. And so from imputed righteousness, there's no wondering. And there's no, there's no sense of, I hope I've done enough. The question, what, we, what we hold to is that Christ did exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever imagine in perfect obedience. You see, Jesus obeys the first commandment perfectly to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one, and the summary of the whole law. And so this is what I firmly stand on, is that grandma was never good enough, but receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ is more than enough. Yes, Aaron. Mm-hmm. It was delegated. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that. And and, and and it was and it was it was quite subjective, you know, because it was like, I, now I'm sure over time, you know, here's the sin, here's the offense, here's the time, here's the, uh, you know, all right, it's going to cost three da 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 da, or whatever it would, um, because they just, oh, you lied, you stole something, one, two, three, four, all right, the, so maybe there could have been uh, some sort of standard I don't know of, but yeah, Aaron, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, can you see why Luther is just going like, what is going on here? You know, they're prying on my people. And then he understands imputed righteousness. And he's like, purgatory? Treasury of merit? The full merits of Christ are given by faith to all who come in faith and repentance. 
Christ in his fullness is given to us. There's not like we don't get half of Jesus and then as we grow in our sanctification get more of Jesus. It is Jesus has been dispensed. His righteousness has been given to those who believe by faith, who have repented, that are in Christ in in his entirety. That is good news so that we can have with certainty when we die. We We don't get to our deathbed and say, I hope I've done enough. We get to our deathbed and we look back and we say, it is finished, paid in full. He has done enough. It is all of Christ. So moving on here, Luther starts picking up steam here. You know, 1521 is the Diet of Worms. That's the, 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 the big, here I stand. Well, Luther starts writing. I've talked about this. Let's keep talking about this. Movements last because people write. And so one of his first books that he writes is on the papacy of Rome. And he pumps out three books in a matter of six or, six or eight months that you just see the growing defiance in Martin Luther. Uh, and this is what he argues on his book of the pa- on the papacy of Rome. Uh, that the true church is the person who listens to God's word. This is revolutionary. The true church is not those who come and pay the alms and stick the money in the coffer or anything like that. The true church are the people who listen, hear, and respond to the word of God. He is beginning, he's having this shift and he's beginning to understand what we see in 1 Peter, the priesthood of the believer. He would also go and say that the Antichrist is in Rome by claiming infallibility. Now, Luther did not believe that the Antichrist was like a certain person. He believed it was more of a spirit or an attitude. And he would say that the, the claim to infallibility to the one who sits in the seat of Rome, he says that is Antichrist. That is completely anti-gospel. And so Luther starts writing about the Pope being, uh, and his claims being Antichrist. So this is on the papacy of Rome. He then writes the address to the German nobility. And in, in this book that he writes to, the, to his fellow Germans, um, he, he is very clear that the church was corrupt, and he had come to the point she will not reform herself. The church will not reform. And so he believed that the German nobility could call councils. And he argued that, listen, you see the precedent because Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in 325. He says, so you can call the councils. The church is corrupt. Call the councils. Call church councils. In the address to the German nobility, he also talked about the three walls of power that were created in the church. These are all what was going on and this kind of gets to the point of what Aaron was even talking about with how the priests would have this power over the people in the sense of, okay, it's going to cost this, this, and this. Um, popes, bishops, monks, priests are spiritually superior people. Only the pope has the right to interpret scriptures, and only the pope could summon church councils. Uh, Luther attacks all three of these as false as just ways in which the church has set itself up to continue um, and hold power. Yes, Aaron. Uh, 
well, yeah, so a couple weeks ago we talked about there's the, 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 the conciliar movement and then I, well, I'd have to go the courier, courier movement. And so that was the wonder of who holds power. Do councils hold power over the Pope? Does the Pope hold power over the councils? And which one has the authority? So that was going on. This is where the great schism occurs, and they don't know. And so the whole idea at that time of the, of, of the councils was that, you know, we understand that the, there was no separation of church and state. So church councils hold great political power. Um, and so to call that was a, was a political, powerful move. And we, we've lost that, you know, in, in, our, in the West and separation of church and state. So to us, calling a church council is like, well, we're independent Baptists. What does that mean? You know, what, the elders meet? So, um, no, he was, because he was, you know, he was never believed in separation of church. None of those guys were ready to separate from church and state. That was, that was Roger Williams. Um, but Luther saw that the convening of church councils um, had great political maneuvering for uh, the, the nation state of Germany. Um, and, you know, everything was tied together, you know. So I, I, that'd be the way I would, I would try to explain it. Um, in many ways, as the church decided things, so society, culture, and even governments went. Um, until you see, you know, we'll get up there, but the start of the Anglican church is because I don't like what the Pope and the councils say. Um, so, on his third book that he writes on the Babylonian captivity of the church, this is the full assault. This comes, uh, this is the point of, of, of no turning back with Luther. And this is where Luther assaults the sacramental system. This is where he goes after the, the, the seven sacraments uh, of the church and um, especially uh, the Eucharist or the sacrament of communion. And these are the issues that he takes. One, the laity was not allowed to drink from the cup. He says, well, you would withhold the blood, but not the body. Second is transubstantiation. We've talked about this. I brought it up the very first time because this is so crucial to understanding, not just in the Reformation, but to understanding uh, Catholic, Catholic doctrine and dogma transubstantiation, the view that the body and blood through, are, are, are transformed into, uh, or the cup and the, and, and the bread are transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus in the taking. And then the third, oh, I missed it there, is the sacrifice of the mass. Every time the Lord's Supper is celebrated, it is believed in the Catholic Church that Christ is actually sacrificed. And so, yes, Virginia. It's in the words. I think it's in the words of how they would, would, would talk about it. So they're, not, they're not saying he's, they say he physically died, was sacrificed once, but in a spiritual sense is being re-sacrificed every time for this kind of continuing meritus giving favor to people. Um, and so, yeah, we would look at it and say, hey, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that the Catholic Church is not saying that Jesus is physically dying every week, but they are saying that there is a continued, well, I'll just give you the quote here. Um, and, and that's a very good question. because That's where my mind went, too, as I was studying this. Um, yes, sir. 
So that was done, that was, dis- that was determined at the Fourth Lateran Council as well. Um, and it was, from my understanding, um, there was a central cup, right, so that they would take from, uh, and it was so that there would be no uh, possibility of it being spilled or anything of that nature, and that it was good for them to take of the bread, but not of the cup. Uh, that's, that's my understanding, but that the priest would bless it, so to speak. Um, but uh, th- that's a good question. I'll look into that a little bit further, and I will give you a better answer next week of why they were not allowed to take from the cup. Um, yes, they still are not. That has, that has stayed since 1215. And Luther says, if you're going to withhold one, what's the point? You know, what, what's the, you know what, why, why, can't, why can't you? Why can't we feast and take of the Lord's Supper? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're the common folk. Yep, yep. You get the bread. Um, and so maybe, maybe it is to keep that divide between clergy and laity. Uh, maybe so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. I think it just kind of reinforces the hierarchical system. Um, yeah, and then because of COVID. Because of COVID, they had to give it to you like they got a little slot in the glass that they stick. (sighs) Here we go. Uh, Just so I want us to be very clear, when we talk about the mass being a sacrifice, um, it's important that we don't just listen to Protestants talk about Catholics. Um, But this is important, that the mass is the sacrifice which St. Paul tells us wiped out all the other sacrifices that have been offered until the coming of Christ. This is because he believes that Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, Christ's death on the cross originally merited the graces to redeem the world, but Christ now actually confers those graces. The sacrifice of the mass is the channel by which those graces are communicated. We believe the sacrifice on the first Good Friday is reenacted or represented in the Eucharist sacrifice of the mass. This is very important. This is Friar John Harden on an article he wrote. And he lamented in this article that even in the, in the, the liturgy, in the bulletins, is that the Catholic Church is actually taking out that it's a sacrifice. They're not telling people. But if you start to peel back and look at the doctrine, it is believed to be a reenacted and represented uh, sacrifice. This is bad. One, clearly, I think we all understand, we don't take, we would never take communion in the Catholic Church. Uh, But more important than that, this is saying that the sufficiency of the atonement has to be ongoing. And the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice once was not enough. And that it is this continual conferring of grace. Let's look at a few other quotes here concerning the Mass. Yes, here's your your source if you want to read further on the article. Uh, 
If anyone says that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, or that the sacrificial offering consists merely in the fact that Christ is given to us to eat, let him be anathema. If anyone says that by the words, do this in remembrance of me, which we would clearly etch in our wood in front of us here. Christ did not make, did not make the apostles priests or, or that he did not command that they and other priests should offer his body and blood. Let them be anathema. Do you understand that you are anathema? If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is merely an offering of prayers and thanksgiving or that it is a simple memorial of the sacrifice offered on the cross, which I 100% affirm and not propitiatory, or that it benefits only those who communicate and the Mass should not be offered for the living and the dead for sins. It should not be offered for the living and the dead for sins. Punishment, satisfaction, or other necessities, let him be anathema. This comes from Trent. I want to stress this to you very much so because we live in a very ecumenical world today where there's this kind of like, let's, uh, you know, we must have unity on the essentials, but let's have charity in our differences. I think that's kind of fair to say, but we must understand something. We don't agree on essentials. It's not that, you know, Roman Catholics are just our Christians, Christian brothers and sisters across the aisle. Now, the reality is, is if you would talk to many practicing or nominal uh, Roman Catholics, they don't know this stuff. But you start peeling back and looking at this, it is very, very dangerous. Furthermore, Luther on the, Bapto- ba- the Babylon, Babylonian captivity of the church. Oh, I... Did that twice. Um, all right, so those were Luther's writings. Um, this is Luther against the sacramental system, which I think is very smart and wise uh, that he did. And so he attacks the seven sacraments. And he says there's two. What are the two? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because the others aren't sacraments. He was kind of like waffling over, over penance. He says, he says it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a sacrament. Uh, it doesn't confer grace. We would actually say that none of them are sacraments, but they're ordinances. That they don't confer grace. There's nothing conferred in baptism. There's nothing conferred in even the taking of the Lord's Supper. But it is do this in remembrance. It is a memorial view that we have. And in baptism, it is a sign of belonging. It is the sign of the new covenant. Whereas circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, baptism now is the sign of those who have been brought into the new covenant in Christ. So do, as they do this in obedience, but it is a first act of obedience um, for uh, the believer in Christ. Believer's baptism, so to speak. Luther did not get away from infant baptism. Now, we must be mindful and understand, when we talk about infant baptism in the 16th century, that was like your birth certificate. Uh, For them to do a census or them to understand, um, you know, population and to count numbers, they would go to the church records and they would look at the baptisms. And that's how they understood because there was no census bureau of Germany at the time. And so baptism, which we're getting to right now, um, was very much tied with the state. Yes, Aaron. 
So, uh, so sacrament uh, is, the, is the Latin translation in, in Jerome's Vulgate of what would be known as, uh, it was originally in the Greek called a mystery, when we were talking about the mystery of the ordinances. And so the sacrament, a sacrament is, means that it confers grace. Um, it's mystical in its understanding here. And so a lot of our uh, Reformed brothers, mainly in the Presbyterian Church, do see, uh, like the Lord's Supper, as, as uh, a sacrament. And they, would, they would talk about them both being sacraments. Um, the covenant baptism verse and the sacrament because it's the, uh, what they would call the spiritual presence of Christ. Um, that's Calvin's view on the Lord's Supper. Um, and that, you know, we, it can, in the sense... Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's an element of grace, not salvation or anything like that, but union in Christ. I don't understand it. I've tried to reach, I really don't. I, I see it as, as bread and a cup that we do in remembrance of Christ as a memorial and that, that, that there's no efficacy in it whatsoever, but it does keep a short leash on repentance, on fellowship, on union and communion with the body of Christ. So understanding the difference between sacrament and ordinance, I think I get to it, if you'd be patient. Yeah. Something, something more that you, that you literally sup with Christ is what would be said. We're, not, we're, we're getting away from even the Catholic side of it. I think we can just wholesale reject it. But those that, you know, we are in fellowship with, um, that we do hold a different view with. Um, yeah, and that's a good thing. It's like, well, what about your daily devotions? Is there grace conferred in that? I would think there, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think those are all means of grace. Ordinary means of grace is what I would say. Um, is communion with the saints, is, which is, involves taking of the Lord's Supper, but those are the means in which God has given us uh, that we would be built up. Um, And if you want to hear more about that, come back tonight. I'm preaching on Ephesians 2, where we're going to talk about being built up in the ordinary means of grace. Uh, So that's just my plug. Um, But uh, yeah, I, I think that's a good, I think that's a good parallel too, looking at personal Bible reading and the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Um, And what does that work look like? So I, I see it as very ordinary um, in, in my understanding, uh, and, and I'm open to reason. Uh, I just have not read or been convinced otherwise. Okay, so what happens when Luther, Luther's Reformation goes too far? This is the danger, and this is what the Roman Catholics would say. Where does it end? Where does Reformation end? Would you start doing this? And... That's a question I would pose to you. Where is a good ending to Luther's Reformation? When have you got to the point where you say, I'm reformed? Well, that's not, probably not a good statement. Semper reformanda, right? We're always reforming. But here comes the radicals. This is what happens when Reformation goes far. So, after Luther and what Luther attempts to do... Um, and calls for reformation, then come the radicals. There are many, there are many groups here. I want to try to 
go through this as quickly as I can. They're the radical reformers. They're the revolutionaries. They are distinct from Lutheran and Reformed. Now, the Reformed at this time uh, have come from uh, the Swiss area with uh, Zwingli. Uh, Calvin is cutting his teeth in Geneva in uh, the 1530s. Um, but there is Lutheran and Reformed now because in 1529, there becomes the first split in the Protestant church, as it, as it were. Uh, the split is between Zwingli and Luther. If you're all at all interested in learning anything about that split, I've written a paper on it. You can study some of the theology concerning the Lord's Supper, um, but you can grab that afterwards. So there's Lutherans and Reformed at this time. And then there's a third group that emerges, and they're called Anabaptists. Means rebaptizers or, uh, um, yeah, just new baptism. They came to this belief that, wait a minute, read the book of Acts. And it is clear that those that are being baptized are believers. We need to be baptized again. Now, this was a huge no-no at the time. This was bad. And even in the Westminster um, standards to this day, it says to be rebaptized is to be a sin. This is among the Presbyterians who say this. I would say, well, if you did it right the first time, you wouldn't need to. But... Here come the Anabaptists. All right, so quick quiz question for you. Which tradition do we come from? Which tradition do the Baptists come from? We'd say, well, Anabaptists, right? Yeah, kind of. We would actually say... We are not Anabaptists. We did not come from the Anabaptist tradition. Now, a lot of reformers will say, well, you're Baptist. Of course you didn't. So if you would just do your history a little bit and kind of trace our family tree, we didn't come from this line. We stayed in the, the, the Baptists stayed in the reformers and the reformed tradition until a little bit later, which that will be two weeks from now. And, and when we start considering, um, what's that? a little bit later down the road. So there were the Anabaptists. Three main groups came out of the Anabaptists. There were the mainstream, the revolutionaries, and the rationalists. Or the revolutionaries could be also referred to as the spiritualists. And so let's give you just a, a bird's eye view of the radicals. Um, mainstream Anabaptists. These are the Swiss, Swiss brethren. They took Zwingli's teaching um, but they took it to the next level. Zwingli, we do stand in his tradition. Zwingli understood the Lord's Supper to be a memorial. Uh, do this in remembrance of me. And so um, we, we certainly believe that as well. Zwingli could not let go of infant baptism, though, at his time. And so there were some of his followers that said, oh, no, 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 clearly through the reading of Scripture and this literal interpretive hermeneutic that they had developed, they believed in believer's baptism. Then there were the nonviolent spiritualists. These nonviolent spiritualists, uh, subjective experiences, direct communication with God, coming from this is Menno Simmons, the Mennonites, the Quakers, they will trace themselves back to the Anabaptists. Yes, sir. Uh, 
No, he did not. No, he, he, believed, he believed that um, there was something, uh, what would be the word? Um, so he was, no, no, no. Martin Luther was strongly against, let me cl- clarify this. Luther was strongly against these people. He condemned these, these people greatly. Um, these, these, were, these were true radicals. They weren't owned by the Protestants, and they were, they were disowned by the Catholics. They were their own group of people. And so, um, no, they, all the reformers held to infant baptism as your rite of passage into the church visible, into society. To not be baptized was to be the outcast, was to live outside the camp. And so uh, these, this radical view, what happened was that not the, these, these Anabaptists in some ways were not wrong, but they tried to do too much too fast. Um, and there was a lot going on. In other ways, they were very wrong um, in, some of, in some of their views. No, Luther would not support these. This is what happens when you take Reformation and you start going very, very far with it. Um, and so some of them, uh, they went into this subjective experience, direct communication with God. You would see this was almost a, 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 a revival and a precursor to, to a charismatic Pentecostalism that, that would shed itself in the early 1900s, but really dated all the way back to the second century with Montanists. Um, and so these nonviolent spiritualists, um, very subjective. Um, then there were... The violent spiritualist. These are important. These, this is important to understand. Again, they had the subjective experiences, communication, but they had a very unhealthy understanding and obsession with the apocalypse. You ever heard of those guys that set the dates when and they predict, the predictors? They've been going on for a long time. Even good guys actually predicted dates. Luther predicted dates. Jonathan Edwards predicted dates. Then you have this guy named Melchior Hoffman who predicts dates. And so, um, again, I don't want to get too far. There's a radical kingdom of of Munster. Um, This turns into a very communist uh, society. They take over this place in northern Germany. Um, They're radical in every sense. Let me give you just a little reading here from a a primary source on um, on what was going on in this Radical kingdom of Munster. These violent um, radicals here. Uh, So the date is predicted that Christ will return on Easter. And Easter arrived, but the Messiah did not. So in a vain attempt, um, as, uh, oh, let me give you his name. It it was a follower of, it was Bernard Rothman, who had just died in in Munster, and so uh, his his understudy um, Jan uh, Math- Mathis uh, comes into power, and Mathis claims to have received divine vision, in which he was told he was invulnerable to the weapons of the godless. So he launched a suicidal attack on a much larger army besieging uh, outside the city walls, and was immediately struck down. Upon hearing that Mathis had died, his lieutenant, John Linden, assumed the prophetic mantle. In early May, Linden ran naked through the streets, fell into a trance for three days, after which he insisted on absolute obedience upon penalty of death. He soon introduced polygamy, arguing an Old Testament precedent and asserting that the resultant population growth in this place of Munster, which was called the New Jerusalem, uh, would bring about the second coming. 
And so he ends up having 16 wives or mistresses. And the, the continues, the Catholic army comes after. They, um, this guy calls himself the king of righteousness, the new David. He appoints the 12 elders of Israel. And let's just say this goes very wacky. Um, and this is what happens uh, in the, with, the, with the violent spiritualists. And, and also there was a time when uh, a blacksmith would not comply and they had him killed. Um, there's a third group of, of these uh, radicals that came up in this time. They were the rationalists. These are those that elevated reason above traditional doctrines of the Christian faith. They remained pacifists, so they were not involved in the violence like Munster um, and, the, and the crazy uh, uh, apocalyptic uh, understanding. Uh, they did embrace an imminent return of Christ, but these rationalists also contributed to um, some dangerous things as well. Their view was if it wasn't reasonable, it can't be true. So where do you go and attack? Trinity. What about the Trinity? Sure. So the, the rationalists, they reject the historic doctrine of the Trinity. They embraced a heresy called modalism. Uh, modalism, one God revealed himself in three different modes. Here's a name worth remembering. Michael Servetus. Anyone heard of that name before? Has anyone heard of Servetus? You're going to hear more of him next week, but here's just a precursor to Servetus. He wrote on the errors of the Trinity, dialogue on the Trinity and the reign of Christ. I'll give you a little spoiler. This is the person that everybody thinks John Calvin killed. And it's, it's actually, as we'll consider, Calvin never killed anybody. Uh, but Servetus is a heretic. Servetus is rejected from the Protestants as well as uh, the Catholics. But what the rationalists did was they contributed to something. They gave rise to skepticism. They also founded Unitarianism, which is, um, you, you can see that there's the Unitarian churches around here, but it's the belief, uh, and it's an anti-Trinitarian Christianity, if that makes any sense to you. Um, but they were also the precursors to the, athe the atheism that would rise during the Enlightenment, which would come some years later. But, uh, and many of these would reject the faith and also become universalists. So, when you have a Reformation, it is sometimes hard to pump the brakes. And some go too far. And when you consider the radicals, uh, they took Reformation zeal and they went beyond. They took sola scriptura and ran in directions that they probably should not have gone to. They took to violence. Others took to very subjective God told me type of experiences. Um, and to say the least, when you look at the 16th century, it is understandable you have to see the good, the bad, and the ugly because it's there. And uh, while Martin Luther contributed greatly, and as well as Calvin and uh, 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 Tyndall and those up on the, uh, in, in the British uh, Isles, um, there were very bad things that came about as well. And so we must be mindful of that as we consider, because this is our history, 
This is the, you know, this, you know, we don't own it all, but uh, this is where we've come from. And it's important that we know this. Yes, Virginia. The radicals gave the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the ammunition that they needed to say this. See, this is what happens when you break away from the church. And so they became the standard by which they judged because uh, they lumped them all together. You were either Catholic or you were, you were a radical. You could be Luther, you could be anyone. You were all radicals. And so uh, this led to, which we will consider next week, Rome's response, which was the Council of Trent. Uh, and this is significant for our understanding of our own church history uh, and is also the, the churches that are uh, populated all around us uh, here in Rhode Island. But we will save that for next week. Um, and uh, as I think about this, and I think about the work of Luther, and I think about the works of many of those who, uh, the blood of the martyrs uh, who died for truth, we get back to the, to the fundamental question that we need to ask. How is a sinner made right with God? And the answer, and the only answer, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Because I don't know how much it costs for Grandma to get out of purgatory, but I do know how much it costs the Son of God. And he paid in full. And so we must remember that at the very heart of the Reformation is the recovery of the gospel. Christ formed the church through generations. It became deformed. And then in the 16th century, it was reformed. And that's something we need to understand. Luther, Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, Tyndale, Hus, Wycliffe, these men were not starting a new movement. They were recovering the dusty doctrines of old. And we stand in that tradition. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your history. We thank you for your sovereignty and your providence. That you have had a faithful remnant through all generations. And even in the darkest and seem the bleakest of times, you have raised up champions, men and women of the faith to stand bold to give their lives for something greater than themselves. And Lord, we are here today because of your sovereignty, your providence, and the conviction that you have placed in the hearts of men and women. Father, may we take that mantle. May we run with it. May we stand firm, stand bold, lovingly, compassionately, truthfully, bringing forth the word of life that all may know that there is forgiveness and that there is only forgiveness through the person and work of your Son, a righteousness not of our own, but that has been imputed to us by faith. Lord, because we recognize as your word and your gospel has told us, you made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross of Christ we cling. Pray this in his name, for your glory. Amen.